come at long last to the chapter of Revelation which deals with the most anticipated event in all of human history, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in his second coming. This event will not only be the ultimate fulfillment of his promise to return, but it is to be the fulfillment of all scriptural prophecy. Furthermore, it will be the event to forever silence the mouths of unbelievers who, down through the ages, as we very well know, have denied the claims and the validity of the gospel message. The King of kings and the Lord of lords himself will come in full unveiled glory to set the record straight once and for all that he, Jesus Christ, is the rightful owner of planet Earth because he is not only its creator, but he is its kinsman redeemer. Revelation chapter 19, if you want to open up to that chapter, is probably the most dramatic chapter in all of the word of God. Because it tells us of the event which every true Christian, every born-again Christian, should really anticipate even more than the rapture of the church. At the rapture, we, as the members of the body of Christ, we will be glorified. We will receive our glorified bodies. But at the second coming, or the glorious appearing of Christ, the Lord himself will ultimately be glorified. He will not come to earth as he did at the time of his first coming as a small baby, meek and lowly, born in a humble manger. He will not come to suffer rejection and abuse and mockery and crucifixion from his very own creatures, but rather he will come in power and great glory to be seen and to be recognized by all men and to judge everyone who has refused to come to him in repentance of their sin and in genuine faith. As we consider the contents of this important chapter, which covers not only the return of Christ at his second coming, but also covers the marriage supper of the Lamb, the end of the battle of Armageddon, the supper of the great God, which is a rather gory supper. We have a glorious supper in here, and then we have a gory supper and also covers the permanent end of both the Antichrist and the false prophet, to which all of God's people said, Amen. (laughs) As we consider all of these things, hopefully in our short time here this morning, we are going to consider two main divisions. First of all, in verses 1 to 10, we'll look at joy in heaven, and then in verses 11 to 21, we will consider judgment on earth. And then I'm going to talk about various subdivisions as we come to them, as you can see them up here. First of all, joy in heaven. And under this section, we will look at, first of all, the worshipful praise very quickly. I think I'm going to skip most of this because it's in your notes, and for time's sake, you can just read it on your own. Then we'll talk about the wedding preparation. That's the wife of Christ, the church, preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then, very quickly, in one verse, we'll talk about the wrong prostration that John uh, tries to worship an angel. Okay, so let's begin by looking at the worshipful praise, and for this we'll look at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 19, where John begins by saying, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. 
And again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia! And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Chapter 19 opens with four Alleluias. If you look through those six verses, you'll see that four times the word Alleluia is spoken. This is the happy expression of God's people. And Alleluia, just like the word Amen, seemed to be one of those few words which is the same in almost any language. It was interesting when our family took a trip over to Europe at Christmas time. There was a girl on our tour who was Korean. And she was all by herself, and she spoke very, very little English. But she worked in the Dominican Republic, which is kind of strange. So she spoke a little bit of Spanish. She was just learning Spanish. Why she was on this tour, I have no idea, because it was an English-speaking tour, and she didn't understand anything that was going on. But somehow or another, she connected up with our family. And one day, as we were walking downtown Amsterdam, she turned to me, and in her very broken language, she said, you family happy. And I knew she was saying, your family's happy. Our family was being silly, and we were laughing a lot and everything. And we had found that we could communicate a little bit in English and a little bit in Spanish. So I said to her, and uh, she said, why? You family happy, why? And so I said, es porque Jesus Cristo es en corazón. And I knew, you know, a little bit of Spanish. I had four years of Spanish, and so that, you know what that means. I didn't know how to say our hearts, corazones. <laughs> but anyway, she picked up on it, and she was so excited. She says, me too. And then we both said, alleluia. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those words, and then amen. And it was really neat because the rest of the trip, she would come into my, our room at night, and uh, she and I would read the Bible together, which she said, how did you do that? Well, she had a Spanish Bible, and I had, and we would point to verses, and then she'd get excited. She'd say, amen, and I'd say, amen. It's just so funny because it's one, it, those are two words that I think you can almost in any language you can say, alleluia or amen. Alleluia actually in Hebrew means praise ye the Lord. If you divide it up, that's what it means, praise ye the Lord. It's used, it's interesting to know, you would probably think that this word appears many times in the Bible, wouldn't you? Just, I mean, that would have been my guess. But it only appears 24 times in all of the Old Testament, and all of those times are in the book of Psalms. And it only appears four times in the New Testament, and guess where those four times are? right here in these first six verses of chapter 19. So then, if we think about this, this word has seemingly been reserved, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit throughout all of the New Testament, never uses it. I think he was reserving it for the final victory when heaven truly could say, Alleluia, praise ye the Lord, the great tribulation is finally over. Jesus Christ is coming, and the church, his wife, will be returning with him. So they say, you know, praise ye the Lord. The Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be cast forever into the eternal lake of fire. Satan is going to be bound for 1,000 years. The earth is redeemed at last by her rightful maker and her owner. 
and she, the earth, can finally stop groaning. <clears throat> it's funny, I was reading Dr. McGee, you know, old Vernon J. Vernon McGee's commentary on this, and he said he was coming down the stairs, and he was just groaning and groaning, and his wife said to him, stop groaning, and he said, I can groan, it's biblical. <laughs> And it is true, you know, the whole earth and all the creatures are groaning, waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had to remember that. Sunday night, I had a horrible night. I came home, washed my dishes, grabbed the kitchen towel to dry my hands, and there was this big old wasp bee in there. And he stung me right there in the palm of my hand, and I was jumping around screaming. And I went upstairs to get something, and I came down the stairs, missed the last three steps, and fell, twisted my ankle, and I was lying there groaning. And I thought, well, this is biblical. Oh, man. The saints worship God here by praising him. They praise him for his attributes, and that really is the way that the people of God should honor him, by praising him for his attributes. He's not only worshiped for his salvation, and there's a lot of different aspects of the salvation that they're praising him for, not just their Redemption, salvation, but they'll be praising him because at the end of the tribulation, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints receive their glorified bodies. That's when they get their bodies resurrected. So they'll be say, uh, you know, praising him for their full salvation, as well. There's other things that I'll, that you can read about in your notes. But in addition to worshiping him for salvation, they are also worshiping him for his glory and his honor and his power. He is praised for his glory and his honor, which is his for dealing righteously and morally in judgment. And he's praised for his power or his might, which he has displayed in his judgments on the world through the tribulation. And also for his power in judging the Babylonian harlot systems. And he is praised for the power which he will display in his judgment of the satanic trinity. And all of their wicked followers, and he will judge all of them at the time of his second coming, which is what we're looking at. All three characteristics of God, his glory, his honor, and his power, we have seen repeated, uh, demonst repeatedly demonstrated throughout the tribulation period as we have looked at the book of Revelation. Well, in verse 2, the praise of God's people in heaven continues with the testimony that God has acted in perfect righteousness and in truthful judgment when he did judge Babylon, that two-part system of rebellion against him. And he, he judged her righteously and truthfully, um, and he also avenged at long last the blood of his saints, who this... Uh, two-part Babylonian system had murdered. You know, many, many of the saints of God, probably most of them, were murdered by one of these two Babylonian systems, either ecumenical Babylon or um, ecclesiastical Babylon. You know, if there has been one thing which has characterized this world ever since the first man, Adam, walked on it, it would be rebellion. Rebellion against God. God said, don't eat, but man said, I will eat. God said, here are my laws, but man said, we will do whatever we want to do. God said, come to my son, Jesus, and men said, what? Crucify him. Crucify him. God said, here is my word, but men said, we don't believe your word. 
But finally, in Revelation chapter 19, this rebellion is over. And the only thing left of it is the smoke, as it tells us in verse 3. And because of this, the heavenly saints will once again say, Alleluia. It's interesting to take note of the fact that at the end of all the tribulation judgments, including the end of the great whore, you know, the Babylonian system, those who have seen everything from heaven's perspective, they have been looking down at all the judgment going on in the world. They, and of course because they're in heaven, they have a far more perfect understanding and knowledge of things than all those down here on earth. At the end of the tribulation, they are able to praise God by saying, in verse 2, that his judgments are what? True and righteous. And this tells us very clearly and very simply that anyone who thinks that God's tribulation judgments are too severe or unfair, they are wrong. God is not wrong. The one who disagrees with him is wrong. He will be perfectly righteous in judging the wicked of the earth. He will be perfectly righteous in judging the twofold Babylonian systems of false religion and vast commercialism. He will be perfectly righteous in judging, as we'll see today, the armies which have gathered together to fight one another, to annihilate Israel, Israel, and then to turn against him and try to fight him at the Valley of Megiddo. And he will be perfectly righteous in judging the horrible members of the Satanic Trinity. Now, I'm going to skip the rest of that. You can read about it, as I said, in the notes, except I do want to point out that at the end of verse 6, where it says, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In the Greek, it literally says, praise ye the Lord, because that's the meaning of alleluia. Praise ye the Lord for the all-powerful, that's the meaning of omnipotent, Lord is about to reign. The reign of Christ on earth is about to begin, the millennial kingdom, which, of course, he, he sets up his kingdom shortly after his second coming. And at this point in time, then, when we finish this Alleluia Chorus, and by the way, this is where Handel had his inspiration for writing his famous Messiah. You know, we all know. I wish we could sing it here today. The Messiah. Yeah, that, could you play that on the piano? <laughs> but at this point now, the heavenly procession will be beginning to mount on their white horses, and Christ will be preparing to leave heaven to once again come to earth. This time not to stay just for 33 short years, but this time to stay for 1,000 years. And then, of course, to go on into the eternal state in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, we're going to move to the worshipful praise. We're going to move to the wedding preparation. And in these verses, we have, in very simple terms, the description of one of the most thrilling experiences that you and I, as members of the body of Christ, known as the church, will ever, one of the greatest experiences we will have. Because this, these verses talk about when we, as the church, will be presented in our spotless beauty and in Christ's righteousness, not only to him, will be presented to him as his wife, not just his bride-to-be, but his wife. But we will also be presented to the world as he returns with us. 
And we will be presented to all the saints of the Old Testament and, of course, all the tribulation saints who will be invited to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb as the invited wedding guests. So as we look at these verses, 7 through 9, we will consider, first of all, the wife bedecked in her beautiful wedding gown and then the wedding banquet. So let's look at verses 7 and 8, the wife bedecked. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, that's to Christ, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Because the church... In verse 8 of Revelation 19 here, is already referred to as the wife of the Lamb. You notice that? Not just the bride, but the wife. And because we are told that she is arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, which is said to be the righteousness of saints. We'll talk about that, what that means. Because of these two things, we know that she has already, at this point in time... This is right at the second coming. That she has already appeared at what is called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. This probably took place right after the rapture of the church. It is at the judgment seat of Christ that believers, all believers who make up the church, the church, you know, consists of all believers from the day of Pentecost till the day of the rapture, All believers that make up the church will be judged, not for their sins. Their sins have already been paid for in full. They will not be judged here for their sins. They will be judged for their service. They are to receive rewards. You could look at this as sort of a reward ceremony. They'll be receiving rewards based on their service for God while they were on earth. Their works for for Christ will be evaluated. They will be judged And they will be rewarded by the Lord himself. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 14. Now, the word righteousness in verse 8 is literally given in the plural in the Greek. So it should read righteousnesses. I don't know if that's really a word, but it should be righteousnesses, plural, of saints. And it speaks there of the righteous acts or the deeds, the service, the works of the saints. So this stands in contrast to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which belongs to every believer. This is not the righteousness of Christ, is it? It's the righteousness of the saints or the righteousnesses of the saints. So the fine linen, because it does say for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints, the fine linen actually refers to, and this is the wedding gown of the bride, it refers to the righteous acts of the saints who make up the body of Christ. Down through the centuries of the church age, believers have been, as we are, you know, today in our lives, they have been performing righteous acts for Christ, which have been adding, you see, to the adornment of the wedding gown, which the church will someday wear when she is presented to Christ as his wife. The wedding garment of fine linen, then, is the weaving of our own works 
for Christ while we are here upon earth. Now, these works, I hope you understand, do not in any way whatsoever help us to achieve salvation because salvation is by grace through faith alone. Rather, these works are the result of true salvation. They are the evidence or the fruit that we do have a true, genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are you doing in your life to add to the beauty and the adornment of the wedding gown, which the church will one day wear? According to Ephesians 5.27, the bride will be presented to Christ a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The church can only be in this condition. I mean, when we read about the church in chapters 2 and 3, was she without spot or wrinkle? No, not hardly. The church will only be in this condition where she is perfect and, you know, without any spot or wrinkle after she has been to the judgment seat of Christ when believers will be purged of all their dead works. The fact that she is already referred to here in our passage as the wife of the Lamb and that she's already arrayed in her fine linen wedding garment, which is the accumulation of the righteous acts which have survived the purging fire of the judgment seat of Christ, this is a clear refute of those who claim that the rapture does not occur until the end of the tribulation. A rapture at the end of the tribulation, you know, these people are called post-tribulationists. They believe that the rapture does not occur, the church does not occur until the tribulation is over, you know, at the end. They believe it happens at the same time as the second coming, or maybe right before. So the church goes up and comes right back down with him. But this leaves, uh, this position leaves no room at all for the judgment seat of Christ. Nor does it account for how the church, as the wife of the Lamb already here in this scene, is in heaven before Christ actually returns at his second coming. Because most post-tribulationists believe that the rapture happens at the time of the Lord's second coming. You know, that the church meets him in the air as he's coming down, and she doesn't even make it to heaven. She meets him in the air and then comes right back with him. This does not leave time for what? The judgment seat of Christ. And it does, it, they have a real interpretive problem here with, with explaining how she can be in heaven and referred to as already the wife of the Lamb. Now think about these people, the people who do not believe that there is a rapture at all. Ah, rapturists. No rapture. They don't believe in a rapture. And we've talked about them, uh, how they believe that the church is going to improve the world and and we'll make it possible for the Lord to return at his second coming because we'll make the world a, a wonderful place. We're doing a terrible job, aren't we, <laughs> by the way? Well, people who do not believe in the rapture of the church at all have a real interpretive problem with explaining how the church got to heaven at all, you know, prior to the Lord's second coming because what we're reading about is right before the second coming. And they, they look at that and they have to do all kinds of acrobatics to explain it away. But it's very clear if you take scripture to mean what it says that the wife, the church, is in heaven. By the way, the last time we ever read about the 24 elders is in verse 4 of this chapter. Where we, you know, it says the uh, four and 20 elders and the four beasts, those four living creatures, fell down and worshiped God. 
And they said, Amen and Hallelujah. So the last time we read about the 24 elders, and remember we said that we believe they represent the church in heaven. The, the reason that this is the last time we read about them is because from then on, well, three verses later, the church is referred to as the wife. Don't need to look at the church anymore as the 24 elders. She's married now and she's the wife of the Lamb. So the saints rejoice and they are glad and they give honor to the Lamb according to verse 7 because the marriage of the Lamb is come. Now, is come is given in the Greek aortis tense, which means that it is a completed act. In other words, the marriage of the Lamb, not the marriage supper, but the marriage of the Lamb has already taken place by this point in time. Christ and his church are joined in perfect spiritual union. The wedding has been consummated. And the saints also rejoice, we're told in these verses, because the marriage supper of the Lamb is about to take place. Now this is the third phase in a wedding. This is known as the wedding feast or the wedding supper. The false, ostentatious church called the great whore, remember how she was dressed? You know, very ostentatiously and and, and gaudy and seductive attire with gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and scarlet and purple clothing. Well, she has been removed from the earth. And, of course, she stands in stark contrast to the true church who is dressed in her fine white linen. Well, the false church will have been removed in the middle of the tribulation. So Christ will not reveal the identity of his true church, his true wife, until the false is gone. And then at the end of the tribulation, the wife will emerge with him from behind the hidden bridal chamber. Remember when we talked about the Jewish wedding and how for seven days the bride and the groom would go into the chuppah, you know, where the marriage was consummated. That's why we called it the chuppah, you know. And they were in there for seven days. And then they would emerge after the seventh day to be presented before all of the invited wedding guests and to celebrate with them. And she would celebrate, of course, with her bridegroom, the marriage supper, the marriage supper. Here it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, and then depending on the wealth of the bridegroom's father, the wedding supper would go on for however many days he could afford for it to go on. The wealthier he was, the longer and the greater would be the wedding supper. This is what the Lord attended, was a wedding supper in Cana, where he performed his first miracle when he changed the water into wine so that the father of the bridegroom wouldn't be embarrassed. Well, because Christ's father is God, who is by far the wealthiest father of all, some Bible expositors speculate that the marriage supper of the Lamb may last for the entire span of the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year kingdom here on earth. And I would tend to agree with this view, although, of course, I cannot be dogmatic about it. But there would not seem to be enough time for the marriage supper in heaven, if you think about this, now try to follow me, if the Old Testament and the tribulation saints are going to enjoy it. Now these are the, you know, all the Old Testament saints who have died and their souls are in heaven. 
and the tribulation saints who have died, been martyred, and their souls are in heaven. Well, if they are going to enjoy this wedding supper of the Lamb as the invited guests, which we know they are, they have been the invited guests who have accepted the invitation and are going to be at the wedding supper, how can they really truthfully enjoy it if they don't have their glorified bodies? And you see, they do not get their glorified bodies until the end of the tribulation, at the time of the Lord's second coming. Now, I don't know if souls can eat, but we do know the Lord in his glorified body did eat, right? He ate fish. So it seems to me that the marriage supper of the Lamb would wait for the tribulation and Old Testament saints who have died to get their glorified bodies. And if that's the case, it would have to take place on earth. And they, you know, they'll be coming with the Lord also. We'll talk about that in a minute when he returns to earth at his second coming. So all of us together could join, you know, in the marriage supper. We'll be the bride, the wife, and all the others will be the invited guests. And furthermore, if the marriage supper of the Lamb does, would take place on earth, then all of the living tribulation saints as well as saved Israel, because when the Lord returns, all Israel shall be saved. Well, all of those people in their human bodies would also be able to attend the wedding supper of the Lamb as the invited guests. I just don't think it would be right from eliminating them from attending the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they would miss it if it took place in heaven. Now, I hope you followed me on all of that. Now, whether the marriage supper of the Lamb does take place in heaven. Now, there's a lot of godly people who believe it does, and I don't know. I mean, this is just my educated guess on it. I don't know if it takes place in heaven or if it will take place on earth during the millennial kingdom. If it does take place in heaven, then at least there's one thing we can look at as far as the millennial kingdom. The 1,000 years of the millennial kingdom will at least be our honeymoon with our bridegroom. For 1,000 years, we'll have a wonderful honeymoon with the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's move on and look at the wedding banquet itself in verse 9. It says, And he, this is an angel who's been talking to John, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Here in verse 9, we find that... uh, Oh, I've gotten behind here. No, I haven't. That's what I'm supposed to be on. We find that John was instructed to write by this angel the fourth of the seven beatitudes we find in the book of Revelation. These are blessings. There's seven of them in the book. This is now the fourth one. It says, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Invitations from God himself through his spokesman during the Old Testament days and again during the tribulation days, these invitations will have been sent to all people, beckoning them to attend the important marriage supper of the king's son. In other words, what is this invitation? It's an invitation to be saved. That invitation has been extended to every one of you, you know, to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. Actually, if you've accepted, you are going to be there as the wife. But to others in the Old Testament, they aren't going to be the wife because they weren't part of the church, also in the tribulation. They are going to be the guests of the wedding supper of the Lamb. However, as the Lord's, you remember the Lord's parable in Matthew 22, those of you who were with us in our Life of Christ study, this parable is known as the parable of the marriage of the king's son. In that parable, the Lord himself pointed out that most of those 
who were invited by the king's servant, and this will be not only Old Testament saints, but also tribulation saints, most of those who were invited by the servants of the king to attend this wonderful celebration of the king's son declined the offer. Now, this was a free offer. They could just come and enjoy the wonderful supper the king had prepared. And those who declined did so with all kinds of lame excuses. Verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 22 said that those who were invited made light of it. How many people make light of the gospel message? They made light of it and they went their ways. They didn't go God's way. They went their ways. One to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant, that's others who were invited, took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. How many of God's prophets and apostles were were killed for trying to invite people to the marriage supper? Well, the king, of course, was very angry with this treatment of his servants and with the response to his free and generous invitation. And since he had already prepared all kinds of blessings and all kinds of wonderful food for those who would attend, he sent out more servants. And this time he told them to go into the highways and the byways and gather together as many as they could find, whether they were good or bad, just find them and bring and, you know, if they're willing to come, invite them. No matter how torn, how ragged, how sinful, uh, if they're simply willing to come just as they are, then let them come. It wouldn't matter if they came just as they were because as soon as they would arrive at the king's mansion, he would provide them with the proper garments for the celebration. And that went into the next parable. I remember there was a fellow who showed up with the wrong garments on because he truly, he wasn't really truly saved. The beatitude here of Revelation 19.9 is essentially saying, blessed are those who, are not on, who not only receive the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but who respond willingly to attend it. They're the ones who are blessed. So the wedding guests then will consist of both the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. They will attend the marriage supper as the friends of the bridegroom. Remember, this is what John the Baptist referred to himself as. He said that he was, he was an Old Testament saint, by the way, because he died before the cross and the resurrection. He said that he was a friend of the bridegroom. So he will be there, not as the part of the wife, but he will be there as one of the invited guests and friends of the bridegroom. Okay, the wrong prostration for this, we look at verse 10. John makes a slight mistake here. He knew better, but he was just kind of overtaken with emotion. It says, And I fell at his feet, this is an angel, to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou, do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. See, at this point, having heard the glorious worship of heaven, you know, the Alleluia chorus, the real one. Can you imagine hearing the real one? And then having heard all about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the beauty of the wife and the blessings of the guests, John was simply so overwhelmed that he forgot himself for a minute here and he felt compelled to just fall at the feet of the one who was giving him this vision and this message. However, the angel himself very quickly restrained John 
from worshiping by worshiping him by reminding John that he was merely a fellow servant who, like John, was privileged to testify of Jesus. You know that no holy angel would ever accept worship which belongs only to God. And this stands in obvious contrast to who? Satan, right? Lucifer, the, the once mighty archangel who desired above all else the worship of man and his fellow angels, worship which only belongs to God. So the angel reminded John to worship God. And then he said, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Most of us would probably skip right over that little phrase there. But that is a very, very significant phrase because it means that all prophecy, all prophecy in the scripture at its very center, at its core, is for the purpose of revealing the wonder of who? Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is not only the subject of the scriptures, but he is the central theme of all prophecy as well. He is the substance, he is the subject, he is the sum total of all prophecies from Genesis all the way to the last chapter of Revelation. Well, if John was overwhelmed with what he had seen to this point in time, he really hadn't seen much at all in comparison to what he was going to behold next. In verses 11 to 21, we have, as I said earlier, the greatest event of all human history. We have the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his subsequent, subsequent conquest over evil. And so we move in our outline to the second part. We've looked at joy in heaven, and now we're going to look at judgment on earth. And under this section, we're going to consider the Lord's coming and then the Lord's conquest. So let's begin by looking at the Lord's coming, verses 11 to 16. And I just get goosebumps when I even read this. John says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Isn't that just magnificent? Mm. These verses describe for us the climactic event toward which all things in this present world are moving. This, of course, is the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. And this is known in Titus 2.3 as the glorious appearing. That's the title of our message, the glorious appearing. Appearing. Now, I've mentioned on several times previous in our study that the Lord's second coming actually consists of two phases, two parts. The first phase of his second coming is known as what? 
the rapture, and it will occur when Christ returns in the air. He doesn't come all the way to earth. He comes in the air for his saints of the church age. The second phase of the second coming, which we have right here before us us in Revelation 19, will be the Lord's return. It has a number of different names. Like I said, the glorious appearing or the revelation. Some call it the revelation. Or you could call it just simply the return. This time he does come to the earth, all the way down to the earth, and he comes not for his saints, but he comes with his saints. And this will talk about not only includes his church, his wife, but it will include all saints. Now the opening of the heavens you'd think would be dramatic enough, but John then saw in prophetic vision the fulfillment of all of the hopes and dreams of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the glorified Lord himself thundering out of heaven on a white horse with the armies, plural, of heaven, also upon white horses, and they are charging down to the earth behind him. Now this is a far cry, isn't it, from the Palm Sunday procession when the Lord, very meek and lowly, entered into Jerusalem, followed by a ragtag group of Galilean fishermen. And what was he riding on that occasion? Just a young donkey. So this is a far cry from that. This next time he will come on a white horse, which is a symbol of a conqueror, and he comes in power such as no mere man has ever, ever seen. He does not come in humility. This time he comes in judgment. First name, we're giving, given four different names for Christ in this section here. We're told a lot about his nature, and we are told of some of his names. So his nature and his names. The first name that we are given in this second coming scene is that the Lord is called faithful and true, which are attributes which stand in direct contrast with another rider we saw on a white horse who appeared at the beginning of the tribulation. Now we're at the end of the tribulation. Who was that rider we looked at in Revelation 6-2? He was the Antichrist. The Antichrist who proved not only to be extremely unfaithful to every promise which he had ever met, but he also proved, of course, to be a liar, of the first class, and a deceiver, just like his father, the devil. The Lord Jesus is called here faithful and true because these are the two characteristics which make his second coming absolutely necessary. He must be faithful, and he must be true to his promise. He had said that he would come back. There are many, many prophecies in the scripture which refer to his second coming. And he said himself he would return. And therefore, he has to. He's faithful and true, so he will keep his promise. Christ is the only one that you and I can trust totally, that we can rest upon with absolute Certainty in every single aspect because he is faithful to every single word he has ever spoken or written. And in fact, he is truth incarnate, isn't he? I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said in John 14, 6. He will also be coming in righteousness both to serve as judge 
and to make war. And this fact again stands in contrast to his first coming when he was judged and he was judged very unrighteously, wasn't he? Now he's coming as judge, and he will judge in perfect righteousness. And neither will his eyes be as they were at his first coming. Now, I know the Lord must have had really wonderful eyes, but yet they were human eyes, weren't they? They were just like our eyes, except I know they had to have been full of deep understanding and compassion and love and also sorrow. I think when men looked into his eyes, they saw sorrow and and they saw things they didn't see in normal eyes, but still they were human eyes. But at his second coming, what are his eyes described as being? Flames of fire, as a flame of fire. Now that's, you know, maybe we have that once in a while when we are angry, but not like this. These are going to be the eyes of omniscient judgment coming to put down all unrighteousness and all rebellion. And then upon his head, we are told are many crowns, not just one, not just a thorny crown, many crowns. So he is not only coming as a warrior, But he is coming, and that's symbolized by his white horse and his sword. But he is coming as king, symbolized by his many crowns. You know, it was the common custom in biblical days for a conquering king to take the crown from the king he had just conquered. We have an example of this in 2 Samuel 12, when King David conquered the Ammonites. David took the crown off of the Ammonite king's head, and he placed it on his own head. Kings used to collect crowns, you know, kind of like trophies. They collected crowns. The great red dragon, who is Satan, had how many crowns? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven crowns on the one who is Satan. That's, of course, symbolically the great red dragon. And that we talked about probably symbolized the seven world empires that he has used against God and against God's people. And then how many crowns did the beast rising up out of the sea have? He had, yeah, he had seven. No, he had ten. Christ has 10 crowns. He has 10 crowns. You can look it up yourself in um, Revelation 13. And that, of course, spoke for the 10 nations over which he would rule, the 10-nation confederacy. So crowns, anyway, are biblical symbols of dominion. When Christ comes, he will have on his head many crowns, not just seven, not just 10 I mean, that's still a lot, isn't it? But he will have many crowns. As a matter of fact, did you know that he will have all crowns? Because he is king of kings. He is the king of all kings. Furthermore, if you remember, back in Revelation 4.10, we saw the 24 elders who represent the church, saints. They were casting their crowns at the the throne, weren't they? So it could be that some of those many crowns upon the Lord's head will also speak of the crowns that he was given by his beloved church. Now in verse 12, we come to another one of the mysteries of the scripture. 
one of those secret things which belongs only to God and to Christ. John tells us now that the Lord had a, a name written that no man knew but he himself. This very well may be the new name that we read about um, in, in the letter to the church of the Philadelphians. Back in Revelation 3.12, the Lord Jesus had promised the overcomers of that church that he would write upon them, the overcomers, his new name. Do you remember that? That he would write his new name. So very well, this could be a reference to this name that we don't know here. Now, there has been a lot of speculation as to what this new name might be. A lot of people have tried to speculate, but since we are clearly here told that no man knows what it will be except who? The Lord himself and, of course, God. I think that it would probably just be a waste of time for me to stand up here and try to speculate what this new name is going to be. I really do not have any idea what it will be. But it is exciting to know that we are going to be learning new things about our Lord. I believe that we'll be learning new things about him throughout all of eternity. And that's why we need to be with him for eternity, because he is so deep and there is just so much to learn about him in all his fullness that it is literally going to take eternity to get to really, really know him. And that's just one of those things that's going to really make heaven heaven, isn't it? You know, getting to know our Lord Jesus Christ, like Paul said, you know, that I may know him. And that's what we'll spend eternity doing. In addition to other things, we'll be learning to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then continuing with his description of the returning Lord, John wrote in verse 13 that he is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Christ will be coming to make war. In addition to other things, he's coming to make war. And so he has on his war clothes here. They're blood-stained from his many enemies that he has already defeated in years past. And perhaps these clothes are also stained with some of his own blood, which he shed at the cross. As we've already learned previously in Revelation chapter 14, his garment, his war clothes here, are going to get even more blood splattered, aren't they? When he um, treads the wine press at Armageddon. And then his clothes will really be covered with, with blood. So there's no sense in him wearing, at this point, his white clothes. He's coming to do war, so he's wearing his blood-camouflaged clothes. And then at the end of verse 13, the Lord's called another name. He's called here the Word of God, Logos, the Word of God. And so if there is any doubt before this, as to who this one coming on the white horse might be, this settles it. This name settles it. Because the first chapter of the Gospel of John clearly tells us that the Word of God is who? Jesus Christ. It says in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you go down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. Okay, very clearly, that is Jesus Christ. According to John 1, verses 1 to 3, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is the Creator God also. He spoke and everything became. He is the Creator God. And as the Creator, He has every right to judge His creation, right? 
Yes, he does. And with whom will the Lord be returning? Well, verse 14 tells us that the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Now, we know that this army, actually it's plural, there's more than one army, will include angels. Did you know that? Yes, it will include angels because Matthew 25, 31, and this was the Lord himself speaking in the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is all about the signs which precede his second coming and then his second coming. Well, in Matthew 25, 31, he says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. We have other places as well that tell us that at his second coming, the angels will be coming with him. And then these armies, plural, also will include, of course, his wife, the church. We'll be there. We'll be riding on white horses, coming with him. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye, and Paul here was speaking to the church, he said, then shall ye appear with him in glory. So we know, and there are other scriptures as well, that verify the fact that not only will his army consist of all the holy angels, but his army will consist of you and I as the church, members of the church. His wife will be with him. In fact, the Lord will return not just with his wife, the church, and not just with the angels, but he will return with all of the deceased Old Testament saints as well. And they will perhaps right then at that time as they're returning, receive their glorified bodies. That's when they will experience their rapture. Right now they are just, you know, souls in heaven. The end of the tribulation, which I don't know if that happens right before the second coming or at the time of the second coming, but they receive their resurrected glorified bodies and so will also all the deceased tribulation saints receive their glorified bodies, and they will be in this procession as well. Zechariah 14.5 says, And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Now, I think it's probably very difficult for us to even begin to imagine what a magnificent procession this is going to be. Can you imagine these people on earth as they're looking up, as heaven opens and they see this coming out? I mean, it just blows my mind away to imagine this. As they see all of the angelic host of heaven coming behind this mighty one on his white horse. And we are told, remember the number of the angelic host? How many it was? Back in Revelation 5.11, the number of angelic hosts are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. In other words... John couldn't even begin to count them. And then, not only them, but all of the vast multitudes of the redeemed, purified, and glorified saints. They will also be there on white horses, accompanying their victorious Redeemer back to earth to end, finally, the age-long conflict with that old serpent, Satan, who has far, far too long been the God of this world. Aren't you sick of him being the God of this world? I'll tell you, last Tuesday when I heard what happened there in Colorado, I am so sick of living in this sinful world. I just, when I think about this scene, I just can't wait for it to happen. We get out of this wicked, evil place. 
The good news for us, since we, I hope everyone in this room, is truly a part of the bride of Christ, I really do with all my heart pray that you understand that you are a sinner. You are a sinner. We are all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. We can't even begin to obey just the Ten Commandments. We fail so miserably. I think in my own life I fail every day terribly. We are hopeless and helpless without being imputed Christ's righteousness so that we can be presented before a holy God. You know, one thing we need to emphasize more than anything is the holiness of God. I was reading this little pamphlet that I got on the neo-evangelical movement, and it, it just made it really clear to me the difference. When people put the salvation of souls as the primary thing, for the, the church. They are wrong. Did you know that? The primary not the thing is not the salvation of souls. The primary thing is the holiness of God and giving him glory. So when we put, you know, no matter what method we use to get people saved, that is wrong. The first thing we need to do is honor the holiness of God. And then people will be saved. And, you know, that's just something, I, again, I would like to talk about more next year. Well, I, anyway, I hope that everybody here has truly seen yourself as a sinner and that you know that there's no hope for you unless you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior and know that he, he did die for you. He is not only the creator, he did love you so much that he shed his own blood on that cross for you. And you need to humble yourself before him in genuine repentance and accept him into your life so that you will be part of this scene here and that you will one day uh, be part of his mighty army coming back. But the good news really is that neither human nor angelic beings, even though we're called the army, none of us will even have to lift a finger to fight. I mean, we wouldn't be dressed in our fine white wedding gown and linen, would we? If we were coming to fight? No, because, you know, war is a dirty business, and light white clothes would get totally destroyed, wouldn't they? So it's obvious we're not coming to fight. We don't have any weapons. There's no weapons in our hands. We don't even have a shield, and we've got white clothes on. The only one who is wearing his war clothes, his blood-stained war clothes, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's going to do battle. And how is it that he will defeat the nations that are gathered together, all those millions of people who will be gathered together with their rulers and with the satanic trinity uh, assembled together to fight against the Lord and his anointed, as I read at the beginning in Psalm 2? How will he defeat them? There at the uh, Battle of Armageddon, he will do so merely with the sharp sword of his mouth, verse 15. And that sharp sword is the Word of God. He is not only the Word of God, he speaks the Word of God. You remember how he once spoke and all the world and all the universe came into existence? Remember how he once said, let there be light, and there was light. Remember how he once stood on a very stormy sea and said, peace, be still, and what happened? Instant calm. Winds and waves obeyed him. Remember how he was going to be arrested and they came to ask who he was and they said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am, and boom, all those temple guards, Roman soldiers, Judas Iscariot, the Pharisees, they all fell backward, we're told. 
So all he has to do is open his mouth and he will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, we're told in Isaiah 11.4, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. That's power, isn't it? That is power. It will be the word of God which will speak all things into judgment. He spoke and all things were made. And he will speak again, and all things will be destroyed, judged, all evil things. And that is the power of the word of his mouth. And we are told that he will rule. Then he will rule with a rod of iron. This, again, is something that we read about in Psalm 2. This is a symbol for his justice as he will rule over the world in unyielding, total, absolute authority and righteousness. He will be an absolutely perfect world dictator. He will rule in complete fairness. Won't that be a change? Won't that be a pleasant change? Complete fairness. He will rule in absolute holiness. And under his rule, there will be total peace on earth, everywhere. There might not be peace in some hearts, But they cannot express that because any overt sin will immediately be judged. Now, sinners will still be born. All who go initially into the millennial kingdom will be saved. But those saved people will have children. Those children will be born with the sin nature, the Adamic sin nature. And therefore, because sinners will be born in the kingdom, his authority and power will yet be necessary. So he will be the perfect king of the world. And he will be the absolute Lord. And that is exactly what he will have written on his vesture and on his thigh. Normally, a king had on his thigh his sword. His sword is not on his thigh. His sword comes out of his mouth. On his thigh, he has this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And notice how it's all in capital. I love that. Everything is in capital. This is a title which clearly speaks of Christ's sovereignty. He is king and lord over all, all, everything. He's king and lord over all other kings and all over all other lords who have ever or who will ever live. He is king and lord over time. You know that? He's king and lord over your time. He's king and lord over space. He's king and lord over matter. In other words, he's king and lord over all of creation. So how in the world mere puny little created beings, whether they're men or angels like Satan himself, how they can dare to even begin to think that they can oppose him is absolutely amazing. And yet we know only all too well that this is exactly what they do. Not only what they do today, what they've always done, and what they will do in the future. So let's look at verses 17 to 21, which spell out for us the exact nature of the Lord's conquest at the time of his return. And in this section, we'll look at the fleshly supper. I do not like this part, but this is here. The fleshly supper, the fiery lake, and the flashing sword. So let's begin by looking at the fleshly supper in verses 17 and 18. 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. I guess this is probably close to being one of the most awful passages in all of the scripture because it speaks of the massive carnage at Armageddon. And it speaks of it as a, uh, a, sca- a supper for scavenger birds, buzzards and vultures. It's interesting, there's a girl, a lady in the night Bible study who is in the Air Force, and she just recently returned from being on duty in Germany. And she told me that when she went into her room night, one night and turned on the television set, she heard how they are having over there in Europe or in the Middle East, she wasn't exactly sure the exact area, they are having a terrible problem with an excess of buzzards and vultures. They don't know what to do with them. There are so many of them. And when she said that, I went, oh, wow. We are really getting close. Now, we had had, in the first half of this chapter, we had had a wonderful marriage supper. And now there is a horrible supper for carnivorous birds in this last half of the chapter. So I guess you could call this, you know, if you wanted to think of another name for this chapter, you could call it the two suppers. The glory and the gory. (laughs) Well, John saw here an angel standing in the sun. Remember when we wondered who that angel was in that picture that Kathy Gales brought from the carpenter shop? I just figured out who that angel was. We said, who is that angel standing there with the sun behind him? Well, here he is in verse 17. And this angel cried with a loud voice to summon the vultures and other birds of prey to the supper of the great God. There's three suppers in the Bible. There's the Lord's Supper, there's the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, and then there's the Great Supper, a Supper of the Great God. And every man has a choice which one he will attend. Well, these vultures were invited to feast and to fill themselves on the flesh of all the slain. You know, remember, there's going to be millions, literally millions of men gathered from all the nations of the world to fight there in the Valley of Megiddo. They're going to be drawn there by satanic influence, those frog-like demon spirits. And they're going to be drawn not only to attempt to annihilate Israel, which God will never, ever allow... But they're going to be drawn to fight one another, to wipe each other out of existence. And then, of course, when Christ returns, they have a common enemy, so they turn and try to, um, to fight him. And not only is this a very foolish and proud effort, which will prove to be totally futile, but so too will be their plan to annihilate Israel. God will never, ever allow Israel to be annihilated. Now, it's interesting, you might want to make a note of this, that the word flesh appears six times in these final verses of chapter 19. Now, do you think that's just coincidence? What is the number of man? What is the number of flesh? 
What is the number of the beast? <laughs> six, six, six. So six times the, num- the word flesh appears in these final verses. Five times in verse 18 and one more time in verse 21. This is truly a grim and a revolting picture of scavenger birds. You know, you, when you drive along and you see a bird eating on a dead animal, it just kind of, I don't even like to look. I turn away. But this is where they are picking at and devouring flesh, human flesh, and horses too. But it also di- vividly demonstrates to us that those who live in the flesh and those who rely on the flesh... And those who basically worship the flesh and those who have taken the number of the flesh, 666, to be on their bodies, are going to have their flesh destroyed. The deeds of the flesh. You know, we talked before about the righteous deeds of the saints. Well, the the deeds of the flesh to God are, are very nauseating and revolting. It doesn't matter if they're the deeds of kings or captains, or mighty men, free or slave, great or small, divine judgment is no respecter of persons. It's the great equalizer of all men, and these birds will feast on everybody, even from the mightiest down to the very lowest. So in this chapter, then, are two suppers, one of joy, which follows a wedding, and one of judgment, which follows a war. Let's look now at the fiery lake, verses 19 and 20. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The beast, of course, who is the Antichrist, who is possessed by Satan, will defy God right up to the bitter end, right up to the very end. Satan is going to try to defeat Christ and to try to annihilate Israel. And, uh, of course, he will have influenced the kings of the earth and all of their armies to assemble together there at Armageddon to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Now, this here, what we have in these verses, is a description of what actually went on. This is kind of a flashback. This is what went on right before the Lord opened his mouth to smite the nations. Right up to the very end, Satan... In, through the Antichrist, will be trying to prevent the Lord from taking back that which is rightfully his. And what is that? This earth, planet earth. He's coming back as kinsman redeemer, and he has that unsealed scroll in his hand as proof that he is the rightful owner of this earth. Well, Satan doesn't like that at all because he has been the usurping owner for many, many years. And he is going to not only try to prevent him from taking back what belongs to him, but from saving Israel. Because when the Lord returns, all Israel shall be saved. And he's going to try to prevent him from executing the sentence of judgment on himself, which he received at his defeat at the cross. Satan is already a defeated foe, but he doesn't want to receive his sentence. I mean, he doesn't want to have it executed. Yet, this daring audacity on the part of the Antichrist and also who 
the other fellow, the false prophet, their daring audacity will merely gain them the wonderful privilege of being the first two men to be cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. This lake of fire is the place of punishment for all those who refuse to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan, of course, will follow them 1,000 years later. He will also be cast into the lake of fire. For now, as we'll see when we come next week, in the beginning of chapter 20, we'll find out that he is going to be bound in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. He'll be loosed for a very short while, and then he, too, will join the Antichrist and the false prophet and all those whose names are not found in the book of life in the lake of fire. They will all be sent to the lake of fire. Now today, when believers, um, unbelievers die, when unbelievers die today, their souls go immediately to a place called Hades, which means the unseen world. It's a realm of the unsaved dead. It used to consist of two parts. One was paradise where all the Old Testament saints were kept until the Lord's resurrection. That compartment of Hades is now empty because all those souls were taken to heaven. But all unbelievers from all ages are in the um, the other section of Hades which is called basically hell or Hades or the place of torment. At the time of the great white throne judgment, which we'll be reading about um, also next week, Hades will be emptied. All the unbelievers will go to stand before the great white throne judge, judgment, and there, of course, their names will not be found into, in the book of life, so they will be cast permanently where? Into the lake of fire, where they will join the unholy satanic trinity forever and ever. The last thing to look at, verse 21, the flashing sword. It says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Last word in this chapter, flesh. In this last verse, we're told what happened to the remnant of those armies gathered at Armageddon when they saw their two great leaders, the Antichrist and the false prophet, suddenly snatched from their presence. Many of these men will have been among those who back in Revelation 13, 4, had asked these questions, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Guess what? They just found out who's able to make war with him. The word of God. So when the Antichrist and the false prophet are suddenly gone, the armies left behind will be in total confusion. Yet they won't have very long at all to stay that way, in that condition of confusion, because these unbelieving, ungodly men will be slain like overripe grapes by the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And then, as we have already discussed, they will become the supper of flesh for the fowls of prey, along with all of the kings and the captains and the mighty men who had led them. Now, it will probably be at this time... After wiping out the, the enemy at the Battle of Armageddon, that the Lord will actually put his feet down. He will go to Jerusalem, and there he will land and put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, as we are told in Zechariah 14.4. This is the same place from which he ascended 
when he went back to heaven in Acts 1.11. And remember, the angel said, why, why do you man, men stand here and gape? You know, know ye not that the same Lord who ascended will come back down in like manner. He, came, he went up, literally, physically, they saw him. He went up from the Mount of Olives, exactly the same way will he come back. And right there, everybody will see him. He will land on the Mount of Olives. And who will see him in particular? Israel. They will finally recognize and look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will realize who their Messiah and Savior is. Just like when Joseph's brothers, who thought he was long dead, recognized who he was. And they had such a wonderful reunion. Jesus Christ will have a wonderful reunion with his long-lost brethren of Israel. All Israel will be saved. She will receive uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Well, as dramatic and as climactic as all of this chapter has been, it only really sets the stage for what is ahead. And what we will look at next week is the millennial kingdom and then the eternal state in the next chapter in the new heaven and the new earth. And then we'll find out all about our future home in the new Jerusalem. So these are the fantastic future realities for those of us who are members, true members of the bride of Christ. And these will be the subjects for our final three lessons.